Dress, the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary and April Callahan. Okay, Cass, I'm really excited about today's episode because we get to dig a little deeper into a time period which we've already discussed on the show in a couple of different episodes. You, of course, covered some of the fashion photographers of this era in your episode on the history of fashion photography. And we also spoke specifically about some of the great fashion designers from this period in our episode on the golden age of haute couture. But today, we are going to investigate the nature of fashion journalism at that time during the 1950s. Yes, today we are pleased to be joined by fashion historian and author Rebecca C. Tweet to discuss her book, 1950s in Vogue, The Jessica Dave's Years. And we are guessing many of you are scratching your head thinking... Who is Jessica Daves? That's right, because sandwiched between two legendary editors, Edna Woolman Chase, who preceded, and Diana Vreeland, who succeeded her tenure at American Vogue, Jessica Daves is a lesser known figure to most of us today, but she helmed the magazine at one of the most iconic periods of fashion history, the 1950s. So it's a little bit curious why we don't know as much about her. And that is but one reason this makes Rebecca's book so exciting. We get to learn more about not just Dave's, but also the -the behind-the-scenes operations at Vogue during the 1950s and the very early 1960s. Oh, and the other thing that we are quite excited about, well, you know, this book is drop-dead gorgeous, jam-packed full of breathtaking fashion photography. Yes, Cass, and I was joking with her that I can't even imagine how she dealt with all those image permissions. Oh my goodness. (laughs) Because if any of you listeners out there have written a book, which is considered a quote-unquote illustrated book, i.e. a book with lots and lots of images, you will know that amassing all the copyright permissions for images for a book like this is a whole other job on top of actually writing it. So it was no small feat on Rebecca and her publisher's part, and, and we thank them for this supremely beautiful book. And also, we thank Rebecca for joining us today. Rebecca, welcome to Dressed. Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us on Dressed today, all the way from California. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. So so the the first question I want to ask you isn't exactly related to the subject at hand today, but we've actually been getting a ton of questions about this recently. So I think this might just be a new thing that I institute at the beginning of all of our interview episodes. What was your particular path to becoming a fashion historian? Um, Sure. Well, I think a lot of fashion historians actually take really interesting routes to their career destinations. um, Mm -hmm. And that really makes for interesting work and discussions and you know, people bring different disciplines and ideas into the study of fashion history as a result. So I too didn't take a particularly straightforward path here. My undergraduate degree was in English literature, and then I completed a master's in fashion journalism and was convinced that that was going to be my field. So I was freelance writing and 
Did a lot of internships by that point, you know, at Teen Vogue and Harper's Bazaar and so on. But I did start to have a, a feeling <laughs> that a staff job at a fashion magazine might not be exactly the right fit for me at that point, at least. You know, I really love the research and the writing, um, but I love having the time to really dig into a subject or a topic, you know, get to know the tiny, tiny details. And that's just not always possible, um, you know, at the pace that magazines work. Absolutely. So, um, yeah, so I expand, expanded my final master's project and it became my first book. And then I got a place at the Bard Graduate Center in New York City on the PhD program. Um, yeah, and then that was that. But I'm so grateful for um, my time at magazines, really. I don't think it's a coincidence that now, you know, one of my favorite areas of research is fashion journalism and fashion publishing. So, yeah, you can you can end up here in a number of through a number of different ways. <laughs> mm-hmm. And your knowledge of fashion journalism is actually partially the subject of your book that we're going to discuss today, which is called 1950s in Vogue. And I have to say it is sublime eye candy with hundreds of stunning photos. I mean, I don't even know how you dealt with all those image rights. We can talk about that later offline, perhaps. Thank you. Yeah, it's all good fun. (laughs) (laughs) And I think most of our listeners can probably conjure up an image in their mind about that really specific, iconic style of 1950s fashion photography. So I think we're going to talk about some of those photographers very briefly, but we're going to focus on the work of Jessica Daves, who sat at the helm of Vogue as editor-in-chief for more or less the entire decade of the 1950s and, and into the 1960s. So she had a great deal to do with crafting the look and the feel of Vogue at this time. But inarguably, she is far lesser known today than many of her other Vogue editors who came before her or followed her. And I think we'll also touch on that um, in a bit as well. But first of all, I'm hoping that you can tell us about Dave's early life and career. How exactly did she end up working at Vogue? Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, she's definitely been overlooked and it's not just her Vogue career that's been overlooked, it's been her early life. So when I kind of realized this was a woman who Women's Wear Daily has called the high priestess and the grand dame of fashion, that she co-founded the Fashion Group International, um, that she won both the French Legion of Honor and the Italian Order of Merit, you know, how could we not know more about her, both her time you know, in the editor-in-chief's office, but also uh, what led her there. So actually, she was born in Cartersville, Georgia in 1894. Um, And back then, she was known as Jessie Daves. Um, Actually, she went by Jessie Daves for a while. And she was born into a really highly educated religious family. Her grandfather was actually a Methodist minister and was the first president of Georgia Tech University, Um, And the women in her family were also incredibly well-educated. Her mother and her grandmother were among the first women to receive undergraduate degrees from Wesleyan in the late 19th century. We can talk more about this, but her upbringing and that background has a huge impact on how she thinks and lives and and how she runs Vogue at the mid-century. Just to quickly sum up, she was very conservative, very religious, you know, even as as one magazine put it in the 60s, she sort of maintained that demeanor and those priorities, even as she made the switch from Psalms to silhouettes, which I kind of love. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So she had six siblings. She was always an excellent student. Um, She was valedictorian of her class. Um, She went to Agnes Scott College. And her main skill, really, she was an incredible writer. 
Unlike many of her classmates, she'd later joke that she had absolutely no interest in writing the next great American novel. All she wanted to write was advertising copy. So she started out as a copywriter in Detroit, visited her aunt, who was a librarian in Manhattan, and then moved there in 1921, which really expanded all of her sort of professional horizons. And she had copywriting positions at Best & Co, um, you know, at the New York department store, and then progressed through copywriting and fashion promotion roles at um, stores like Kurtzman and Saks Fifth Avenue. And then finally ends up at Vogue, where again, she was writing advertising copy. And it's Edna Woolman Chase who officially makes her part of the Vogue team as a merchandise editor in 1933. She was in charge of shoes at the time. And yeah, from there, she worked her way up the ranks really for 19 years before officially being um, given the editor-in-chief role. So even before she was officially named editor-in-chief, she had a really phenomenal career and, and was very much involved with um, the fashion industry in Manhattan, would give uh, talks for the Fashion Group International and to various sort of trade shows and trade associations, um, talking more about the business side of things. Yeah. And you mentioned Edna Woman Chase um, just a brief moment ago, who was formerly the editor from which Davis took over. What was the state of Vogue at this time? And were there any specific changes which she made that put her personal stamp on the publication? Yeah. Um, I mean, Dave's inherited a Vogue that was, you know, really in good shape um, financially and in terms of content, honestly. But she'd also played a role in that. It's not very well known, but although 1952 is the year that Dave's is officially listed as the editor-in-chief on the masthead, she actually became sort of the acting editor-in-chief in 1946, a role that she called mm. active editor. So she was really in charge um, immediately following the end of World War II. At that time, Edna Woolman Chase, she was still credited as the editor-in-chief of all three editions of Vogue, you know, US, UK um, and the French Vogue. Um, and was still absolutely very much involved, but she was spending more and more time away from the office, sort of in a partial retirement down in Florida. And so I think that's really important because it means that the the woman in the office regularly, the sort of the touch point in the office in charge is Jessica Daves for like the entirety of one of the most important moments in 20th century fashion history, literally from the new look to the youth quake, you know. But yes, back to the <laughs> the second part of the question. You know, there were a number of firsts and a number of important innovations that Daves brings to Vogue. She's sort of widely credited as the first editor to completely embrace a high-low blend of fashion um, in mm -hmm. Vogue. So she would really demand that her editors included both the most expensive, but also more accessibly priced clothing in their fashion shoots. And I think that's something that, you know, Anna Wintour picks up later, the famous first cover that blends couture with casual denim and caused a stir in 1988. But you can see a lot of those roots in the 50s. Daves is also credited as the inventor of the store guide. So this was a section that would run in the advanced trade edition of the magazine, and it directly addressed retailers. Um, it was called How to Use This Issue of Vogue. And that's something that she started earlier in her career at the magazine. But as editor-in-chief, she really sort of beefs up its content. She would offer tips on how to sell the items featured in the magazine. But most importantly, she would tell retailers when those items would be available to sell. Because another of Dave's sort of 
um, important contributions to the magazine was that she demanded that if you could see it in Vogue, you had to be able to buy it. <laughs> she was a real pioneer in her work to facilitate the timely availability of fashion. Um, so she worked very closely with uh, retailers, designers, manufacturers on 7th Avenue to sort of improve business across the board. And yeah, her Vogue also showcased really enhanced buyer's guides. She honed the shop hound section, which was this sort of advertorial section. Um, and she debuted new, much more user-friendly page layouts where the prices and the store information appeared directly on the page next to the clothing. And a few of the other important things, you know, she installed the first official travel editor on the masthead. She debuted a section called Fashions in Living, which we can talk about later. She also debuted the first annual international fashions issue. So, yeah, there's a lot that we can thank Dave's and her team for during this uh, during this decade. Including employing some pretty incredible luminaries in the field who were contributing to Vogue at the same time, I would say. Because I was really surprised to learn from your book that the amazing Joan Didion was working as a features editor under Dave's. Who were some of the other notable women on her team? Because she seems especially supportive of women working in fashion. Absolutely. Um, I think I talk a lot in the book about Jessica being something of a talent spotter. And it's really true. She recognized talent and hard work. And I think Dave's also knew her own strengths and weaknesses very well. So one of her greatest achievements is putting together a, a staff, a team that really is exceptional. Um, and yes, as you as you say, she was especially aware of women that were making, you know, important contributions. So her staff is sort of unofficially split into the visuals and the verbals. So the notable women working on the visual side of the magazine, there's photographers like Frances McLaughlin Gill and Karen Radkai. We can talk about them more later. There's the graphic designer Priscilla Peck, who's a really interesting character and works very closely with Alexander Lieberman on the design of the magazine. And of course, I mean, the inimitable stylist and editor, Bab Simpson, uh, was working at Jessica Dave's Vogue, um, and Bettina Ballard, another legendary fashion editor. Yeah, she definitely seemed to always know what the next big thing was going to be. She could really pick that out of any fashion show, any collection. Um, and Dave's also had a Paris bureau chief, Susan Train, who worked in Paris uh, during her editorship. And actually, future editor-in-chief Grace Mirabella joined Vogue the same year that Jessica Dave's became editor-in-chief. And Mirabella worked on the shophound section and then was given the sportswear department, which was a big deal in the 50s. Um, and we'll definitely get to that, too. And then on the verbal side were people like Aline Talmy, the incredible features editor. Anything basically that wasn't to do with fashion would cross Aline's desk. Um, she also invented the People Are Talking About news feature series um, in 1938 that was incredibly popular through the 50s. Senior editor Margaret Case was still on the staff then. Um, as you mentioned, Joan Didion. Yep, she cut her teeth as a features associate. <laughs> And she also wrote her first piece for Vogue under Jessica Daves as well. And Joan has lots of incredible memories of both Jessica Daves and Aline Talmy during this time. Kate Rand Lloyd was another editor there. She would go on to become an incredible editor in her own right. She once said about Daves, and I love it because 
this just sort of sums up the era. <laughs> so Kate Rand Lloyd said that Jessica Davis taught me most of what I know about copywriting, as well as that it was possible to be a businesswoman and a lady at the same time. We thought that way then. So I think that really sums it up. Oh, and actually, Carol Phillips, who would go on to become the creator of the cosmetics brand Clinique, she was also the managing editor of Vogue under Dave's. So another interesting woman. <laughs> so, so she clearly had a super sharp eye for promising young talent. <laughs> and I'm really glad that you brought up um, sportswear earlier because there perhaps there was nothing more unique to the American fashion scene during this period of when she was assistant editor, you know, in the 40s and then moving into the 50s to the American fashion scene than its sportswear. And being that she was so focused on kind of a business angle, I, I'm hoping we can talk about that a little bit because what was the magazine's relationship to the quote-unquote American look during this period and also the sportswear designers who were working in this genre? Uh, absolutely. So, I mean, as you mentioned there, Dave's was very serious in terms of the business side of the magazine and the industry at large. And most of her strengths were on the business side. So she had been involved with the American look, you know, really from the outset uh, through her work with the Fashion Group International. She presented lectures and speeches on the American look as a senior Vogue expert in the 30s and the 40s. And so the American look, you know, really, as it spoke to ideals of quote unquote Americanness, you know, versatility, practicality, athleticism, reliability, and of course, democracy, which would become incredibly important to Dave's, all of these ideas really dovetailed with Dave's own view of how to improve the fashion industry. And so she really did speak authoritatively on that subject and encouraged homegrown designers and really impressed upon everyone that she spoke to how important it would be to capitalize on this interwar success uh, of the American fashion industry. She sort of issued this rallying cry in the 40s about how America will not be a stooge for Paris as we often were in the past. <laughs> so really, it's unsurprising that in her vogue, when she becomes editor-in-chief and when sportswear is really coming into its own in the early 50s, you know, all of these designers and their fashions are looming large. Yeah, you can see Bonnie Cashin and her mohair blanket skirts, Vera Maxwell and her easy suiting. Claire McArdle is obviously featured throughout Vogue until her untimely death in 58. Dave's also expanded Vogue's coverage of Californian sportswear designers, um, doing a lot of work on the West Coast and issuing sort of special California fashion issues to really sort of educate readers on the California casual look that was really creating a stir in sportswear. I think also one of the important things that Dave's does when it comes to the American look and American sportswear is she developed really strong ties with the 7th Avenue sportswear manufacturers that were thriving at the time. So mm -hmm. um, companies like David Crystal, Paul Parnes, um, Davidow, who became really well known for their Chanel suit copies. All of these were really championed in her magazine. And I think, again, as much as she would make these calls that America wouldn't be a stooge for Paris. She also asked a lot of American designers, you know, she would issue these 
diatribes in the magazine about how readers wanted clothes that could get in and out of cars without splitting and, you know, jackets that meant a woman could reach for a telephone without ripping a seam. And, you know, a lot of things that people sometimes make fun of her for, you know, that women needed outfits to get in and out of cars, but actually that was the reality. Um, And her Vogue acknowledged that you know, this was a style for a more middle-class woman, perhaps, who had errands and things to do, (laughs) who wasn't necessarily buying, you know, a full closet of Parisian couture every season, but who still needed quality clothes and wanted to look good. Yeah. I think Grace Mirabella sort of puts all of this into a really succinct sort of assessment in her uh, biography, um, talks about how Jessica Dave's commitment to American sportswear was this acknowledgement that Vogue readers did things sometimes. They needed clothing for living (laughs) in the world. (laughs) And that although that acknowledgement, you know, I think she said at the time, you know, it was partial, but it was a profound shift. And that's true. You know, it can be easy to look back and dismiss like, you know, an editor being really worried about women having clothes that could get in and out of the increasingly compact cars that were coming onto the market. But that was a real concern for women reading the magazine. So, yeah. And we also have to remember that this time period was very much the quote unquote golden age of Paris couture, right? So she's at the same time champion, um, you know, these American designers and the American look and American sportswear. But of course, you still have to be covering all the incredible designers like Dior and Balenciaga and all the changes happening in the early 1960s as well. So how is this relationship between European couture and the American design movement presented in the pages of the magazine? Yeah, that uh, apparent sort of contradiction or dichotomy between the the absolute practicality of American fashion and really just stone-cold extravagant luxury of Parisian (laughs) couture is a really interesting balance in the magazine. And, you know, as I mentioned, Dave was really the active editor from 46. And so, yes, just to sort of briefly set that scene, you know, prior to wartime, of course, Paris had really been you know, the unchallenged fashion capital of the world, setting the styles really unequivocally for everyone around the world. And um, of course, with the struggles that Paris couture industry faced um, during the German occupation of France, that really gave America that moment to sort of establish dominance in their own ready-to-wear trade. Um, And then when Dior's new look comes back in 47, that question as to whether American fashion could really maintain that success is on everybody's lips. So Dave's is in charge. Uh, yes, as you say, just such a challenging time. It's a time when, you know, there's really this transatlantic fashion negotiation happening. And mm-hmm. so she really has to handle the situation quite carefully. And of course, on the one hand, she's the biggest champion of American fashion. You know, everything from the most affordable Seventh Avenue Paris copies to the most expensive custom clothing, you know, by people like Norell. She would remind her readers again and again, you know, quality does not have to be a French original. And she was also really aware and outspoken about the fact that it was a tiny percentage of the population that could even afford Parisian couture. Right. And that that didn't mean they couldn't dress well. That was the marvellous thing about American fashion. On the other hand, (laughs) it might be surprising to learn, having seen how just completely staunchly Dave supported American fashion, she really cared about the Paris couture scene. 
both personally and professionally, Paris was incredibly important to her. She once explained this. She said that it was because in Paris, the frivolities have their profundity. And so ultimately, as a businesswoman and as a woman of culture, she saw that you know, French and American fashion could absolutely coexist in the world and in her magazine. And moreover, they really must coexist for a successful fashion industry. So it's interesting when you sort of flip through the Paris collections issues that would be published twice a year, you know, they really don't shy away from showing exactly what was happening in Paris um, and educating readers on how to get Paris clothing in America at different price points, you know, from the highest, like the most expensive line for line copies right down to much cheaper copies. She really embraced both sides of the Atlantic um, and educated readers on both as well. Yeah, and I'm sure that entailed quite a lot of travel. So when they did these Paris Collection editorials, what exactly went into that? Yeah, lots of travel, as you say. Dave's Vogue really coincides with the advent of jet travel. So international shoots, fashion shows, the expansion of international fashion weeks, you know, it was all made possible by the more convenient and comfortable air travel that was available. And actually one big shift that occurred in how American Vogue was covering the Paris collections happened early in Dave's editorship because French Vogue had always been responsible for covering the Paris collections for American Vogue. So French Vogue would do all the photographs and then syndicate them back to the American edition. But following the war, French Vogue really had a depleted office and they really couldn't perform that role any longer. So American Vogue took over the collections themselves and their photographs um, and illustrations, you know, would be syndicated across the British and French editions. So to begin with, fashion editor Bettina Bauer thrived in the role. She was flying to Paris (laughs) as often as she could and developed incredible relationships with the fashion houses um, in the city and with the designers. But Dave's wasn't completely absent, actually, uh, in the early period. Uh, She was definitely going to the shows. She managed to incur the wrath of the Haute Couture Syndicate in 1949 because they thought that she published some sketches before the embargo was lifted and it became a whole thing. I mean, Dave's didn't even care. She just said, you know, I'm at a loss to know what all this whoop-de-doo is about. And she just charged ahead and published everything. And and then, yes, when when Bettina leaves the magazine, Dave's really steps up um, and covers more of the Paris collections. She would write her own biannual Paris collections reports after going to the shows. That's something that Carmel Snow was also doing similarly over at Harper's Bazaar. And actually, I really, I'd encourage anybody to look at her Paris collections reports. You know, I think it shows that she was, you know, a knowledgeable fashion historian. She really did have some good insight into reviewing fashion. And as I say, she's a talented writer. And then, of course, on top of going to the shows herself, she would send some of the best photographers, maybe some of the most memorable uh, Paris collections shoots come from Karen Radkai or William Klein. You know, they might shoot on location in Paris. So there's some really incredible images of this Paris couture sort of on the streets looking beautiful. But yes, lots of travel, lots of teamwork, um, and lots of incredible images. 
And I was really happy that you've mentioned Karen Radkai a couple times because she was far from the only female fashion photographer who was working for Vogue at this time. Tony Frizzell, for instance, was a frequent contributor under Dave's, for instance. But Radkai is lesser known to most of us today. Would you tell us a little bit about her and what made her work so unique? Yeah, I think Karen Radkai is such a fascinating figure. And I think there's something of a parallel between Radkai and Dave's in that they've both been somewhat overshadowed or sort of overlooked as the years have gone by. But she was perhaps the most active photographer on Dave's Vogue. Um, she prodigiously shot fashion features, numbering into the hundreds, and she was actually responsible for more than 30 covers during the Dave's era. So I do tend to see her photography as sort of the best reflection of Dave's Vogue. And her history is really interesting, too, because she was married to fellow photographer Paul Radkai, who was already, you know, a successful fashion photographer. Um, And really, she started photography fairly late in life. I mean, when she started at Jessica Dave's Vogue, she'd only really been in the industry for four years. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, But I think that being surrounded by photographers like her husband, she was in um, Alexei Brodovich's uh, design lab classes, You know, so she really fast-tracked her work being surrounded by um, some of the most talented photographers of the era. It was Alexander Lieberman who spotted her, was impressed with her versatility and really, you know, brought her into the Vogue fold. And we really can't talk about Vogue without talking about Lieberman, but I think we'll get to him in a second. (laughs) Yeah, he absolutely really spots a lot of the sort of the visual talent that comes to Vogue. Um, And he particularly loved the... Radkai was really um, versatile, but also that she was an exceptional color photographer. Um, And at the time, you know, color photography could still be a little tricky. There was a lot of variables that could affect one's shots. Um, And she was one of the few female photographers that was really excelling. And I think, you know, just other other stories about her, she was tireless when it came to getting the the right shot, even on location in inclement weather. She was relentless. Um, she had a knack for capturing sort of elements of surprise in her her images. She loved to work with props, mirrors, flowers, cigarettes, or, I mean, her personal favorite was working with animals. She loved to use animals in her fashion photography to create a sense. It's so of, charming. It's so charming. Um, just to create that sense of sort of energy and movement and unexpectedness. So, yeah, so Radkai is there, as you mentioned, Tony Frissel, although she doesn't do as much under Dave. She maybe does around 25-ish assignments, but it is great to see her work there. You know, she does some fashion pieces for Dave's and she does some sort of society portraits for Dave's. Frances McLaughlin Gill was also a female photographer who was incredibly active at the time. So, yeah, between them and, and the, the female fashion illustrators that Dave's also had on the team, women were well represented in fashion imagery. And alongside some of the great male luminaries of fashion photography at this time, would you just rattle off a few names? Because I'm sure our listeners know who many of these people are already. Yeah, absolutely. You're really spoiled for choice um, when it comes to photography. Um, Some of the other names that you'll absolutely recognize, Erwin Blumenfeld, Henry Clark, Horst, William Klein and Irving Penn, Clifford Coffin, John Rawlings. Norman Parkinson is also featured. And what I would say is that I think you get a real mixture of visual content in Dave's Vogue. I think it's become really easy to sort of dismiss this era of Vogue as being less exciting than others. And 
and less exciting than what was happening over at Harper's Bazaar at the time. And I think that, you know, in some ways it's true. You get a lot more sort of didactic fashion photography. So photography intended to really align with Dave's efforts to help readers understand how to put an outfit together, to understand how to layer and style pieces, to be able to really see and recognize quality in individual, you know, items of clothing and so on. But, you know, the imagery is still great. I really love it. It's witty. There's gorgeous shots. But yes, it's become easy for people to sort of make these blanket statements that, you know, nothing exciting was happening in terms of the photography. And it's a real misunderstanding because, Irving Penn was working regularly for Dave's Vogue and doing incredible work. Um, and William Klein starts his Vogue career there. Dave's footed the bill, actually, to get him a new set of uh, cameras and lenses to shoot the Paris collections when he was sort of new to the scene. And his famous light painting series was actually for Dave's Vogue. So there's plenty mm. of excitement that sort of balances the sort of popular images of American fashion in Vogue at the time. Yeah, and... Another influential creator, but perhaps from a slightly different perspective, is someone that we've mentioned a couple of times, Alexander Lieberman. Who was he and what was his role at Vogue? Yes. Yeah, so Alexander Lieberman, um, you can't really talk about anything to do with Vogue in the 20th century without, exactly. without talking about him. Um, he was a Russian emigre, um, an artist, a sculptor, and a painter in his own right. And he really defines the look of Vogue as the art director and eventually a host of other Condé Nast magazines um, throughout his career. He started under Edna Woolman Chase, but has a really interesting relationship with Dave's actually. When you sort of do a cursory Google about Lieberman and Dave's, you mostly just see a few examples of, you know, Lieberman could be a little catty or mischievous. <laughs> he could be a little capricious. Um, the popular story that gets repeated and that Lieberman himself loved to retell was that Dave's was at one of his glamorous cocktail parties that he would throw with his wife. Um, and she forgot that she was wearing a hat with a veil and tried to eat an hors d'oeuvre. <laughs> it made quite a mess. <laughs> so she could be a little nervous in social situations, but Lieberman thought that was just a hilarious story to retell and retell. I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure she was happy about that. <laughs> um, but beyond these sort of moments of friction, you know, I came to call this sort of relationship between Lieberman and Dave's one of creativity and compromise because mm -hmm. Dave's absolutely deferred to Lieberman's uh, artistic sensibilities across the magazine. That wasn't necessarily her great strength, but she also knew when to rein him in from going too far. And she was definitely attuned to the art world in Manhattan at the time, which we'll talk about later, but she gave Lieberman space and support to really broaden Vogue's artistic purview, which he loved. You know, there really was a mutual respect there, even if it wasn't close friendship. He respected her efforts to make Vogue uh, a vehicle to educate public taste, and she respected his artistic talent. And I think that they sort of worked together to get what they wanted. I mean, some of the hallmarks of his graphic design for Dave's Vogue is... You know, he loved full pages. He didn't want to he didn't want to see white space. He wanted like a tabloid style approach. His aim really was to take Vogue away from being a staid sort of album of images um, and just make it more playful and bold. And he did a lot of interesting covers. I mean, prior to the Dave's era, but during the Dave's era, he would blend, you know, illustration and photographs in a way that would really be kind of a thing of the past by the time the 60s come around. 
Yeah. Um, work closely with photographers like Penn and Klein, love to create stoppers, you know, those incredible images in the magazine that just make you stop as soon as you reach the page as you're flipping through. He worked hard to actually commission more artists to create custom backdrops for fashion shoots. And then he did a lot of his own artistic content, including a series called The Artist in His Studio. So yeah, it's a really interesting relationship and he is a fascinating person. I really loved this quote that you included in your book from Lieberman. He said, quote, Vogue is not really about fashion. It's about women. So, you know, you mentioned this combo of of how Lieberman and Dave kind of balanced each other out in certain ways. And under the direction of these two, we really see Vogue become a guide to living. It's kind of this synthesis of fashion and art as a lifestyle. And that included, as you just said, this expanded coverage of modern art of the era. Would you tell us a little bit more about some of the modern artists that were covered in Vogue at this time? Yeah, modern art is a real focus of Dave's Vogue. But I will quickly say that it's not, you know, this isn't to say that modern art and artists were absent from American Vogue before this. Edna Woolman Chase's tenure actually coincided with the opening of the Museum of Modern Art in New York. So there was a flurry of features and photo shoots that included modern art and artists then. But the problem was that Chase herself really didn't have any great personal love of modern art. So you can sort of feel that in the level of attention that was paid to it. But um, yes, Dave's gave modern art renewed attention, probably because of two things. Um, I mentioned briefly you know, she herself was involved in the art world. Her husband was a was an art critic. And so they had a lot of these interesting sort of connections in this sort of circle of artistic friends and acquaintances. Most interestingly, the artist Marcel Duchamp actually lived with Jessica Daves and her husband when he first emigrated to America. Yeah, he lived in their apartment while planning his first <laughs> US show. So, you know, she was definitely involved in the world and she was happy to support Lieberman's love of it as well. So yes, Lieben really takes the lead on this. And there were a number of ways in which modern art was brought into the magazine through quizzes and general features. But the most important, really, as I mentioned, was uh, this series called The Artist in His Studio. So Lieberman became afraid that, you know, a really important moment and really important era in French art history would basically be lost following the war. And so he sort of set out to single-handedly profile the artists and their studios. I think the aim was really to sort of make these revealing intimate portraits of both the creative process and the great masters themselves. And some of them were still living, but a few were not. But they had left behind these studios that were basically untouched and were sort of just incredible to photograph. So he traveled around um, and created these, these features And they really were, you know, as you said, that the magazine really becomes this sort of has a more holistic approach to fashion, art, design, style. Mm -hmm. You can see that in these features because they're sort of on the one hand, they're like typical lifestyle fodder for a women's magazine, you know, describing the houses and the gardens and, and that kind of thing and what they were eating for lunch. But then they become these, you know, pretty major art history documents that really profile the creative process of these artists. Among them was Brat, Giacometti, Chagall, who else? Uh, Monet, Kandinsky, Picasso. The Picasso one is really fascinating. And the series eventually became a book in 1960 as well. So um, 
it's interesting to see the quality of the the writing and the features in Jessica Dave's Vogue would ultimately lead to several books, actually. Yeah, and I think that she really kind of saw this alliance between art and fashion flowing both ways, perhaps, that it was also important for the designers, the fashion designers themselves, to kind of be immersed in this, you know, entire holistic world of creativity, because there was another quote in your book. I I like this one a lot too. And Dave's herself says, the couturier's ties with art are as tangible as they are numerous. Balmain studied architecture and Dior was an art dealer before designing dresses. So again, it's just kind of emphasizing that importance of this all around quote unquote modern lifestyle, which included, you know, fashion, art, and also design, as in like industrial design and interior design. And you briefly mentioned um, her her new column that she launched, Fashions for Living. Would you tell us a little bit more about this and some of the designers which this column featured? Yeah, I love the Fashions for Living section. I know, it's so good. <laughs> I'm like dying over all the furniture in like every one of those shoots. It's genuinely great. I mean, it can be its own book. And it's funny because I think a lot of people associate it more with Diana Vreeland, um, who also embraced the department and gave it a lot of attention. And she brought in a lot of celebrities to be featured. It became a real sort of celebrities at home kind of department under, under Vreeland. But it did actually start with Dave's. So... Um, Typically, prior to Dave's being editor-in-chief, any features on entertaining or recipes, homemaking, or the world of interiors or profiles of important interior designers were sort of sprinkled throughout the magazine, and that continued in Dave's earliest years as editor-in-chief. But by the mid-50s, the magazine started to receive a lot of letters from readers who are basically saying, you know, we love these features, but they're, they're, they're so sprinkled through the magazine, it's hard to, to find them so I can clip them out and put them in my scrapbook. And so Vogue announced a solution that in 1956, they'd have this new section of the magazine, Fashions and Living, and it would be its own standalone department in the magazine. And any of the reporting to do with uh, entertaining, homemaking and interiors would all be included there. And yeah, it's it sort of announced this renewed commitment to that kind of content, which, as you've mentioned, you know, is really sort of in line with Dave's more holistic approach to style. The section featured a lot of major interior decorators of the time, Dorothy Draper, the women on the team at Macmillan Inc., um, Ellen Lehman McCluskey, Michael Greer, Billy Baldwin, Um, And the designers might be shown in their own, you know, really perfectly decorated homes or their vacation homes or um, their work on other celebrity homes would be featured. One of my favorites is a feature on Cole Porter's Manhattan apartment in the Waldorf Towers, which had been decorated by Billy Baldwin. But Vogue also really did, through the Fashions in Living section, encourage readers to think about how they could create beautiful, functional living spaces on their own, you know, to take these tips and tricks, to incorporate them into their own spaces, whether that be purchasing furniture that looked similar to the design that Billy Baldwin created, or to think about colors and colorways that could go together. And again, to really emphasize that sort of holistic approach to style, If there was a travel feature in the magazine, you know, resort wear in Greece, you might find a few pages later in Fashions in Living that there is a whole feature on incorporating Greek accents into your interior decoration. 
And then, yes, in addition, recipes, guides for entertaining, you know, everything from (laughs) instructions on how to create a full banquet with a full staff to hosting an intimate dinner party with no help, which was uh, (laughs) a reality for many women at the time, but was sort of uh, something new for Vogue to be covering. And then, yes, lots of these sort of fashion and interiors crossovers, you know, encouraging women to think about what to wear in certain spaces of the home to enhance these sort of visual effects, um, highlighting designers who were really thinking about the practicalities of home life, you know, Bonnie Cashin, I mentioned earlier, or um, just different sportswear designers who were creating clothing that was just as at home, you know, for an intimate party in a country house as it was for, you know, hitting the streets in the city. So, yeah. And I think all of this really comes again, like to what you said earlier about educating readers on modernity and and what does modern progress look like from an aesthetic standpoint. But in terms of the history of fashion journalism, we all know progress never exactly stops. <laughs> so fashion itself is fickle and, and never really stops changing by a very definition. And even top fashion editors themselves are oftentimes at the mercy of time when it comes to the length and lifespan of their careers. So Diana Vreeland leaves Harper's Bazaar and joins Vogue in 1962. What was the relationship between Dave's and Vreeland like and what ultimately happened? Yeah, you're so right. I always remember Grace Mirabella saying something like, you know, what makes you a good editor in one era is your downfall in the next. And Mm -hmm. it's just so true because once Vreeland joins Vogue, things do not go well. (laughs) Yeah, Dave's has this, you know, all business, high culture approach to Vogue, um, which had been, you know, incredibly successful, but was becoming less desirable, basically, as the 60s drew closer. And with the advance of youth culture and a changing America, you know, Vogue, you know, felt it was time for a new editor-in-chief. So they moved Diana Vreeland to the magazine in 1962, And at first, the pair worked together, which is just a disaster waiting to happen. (laughs) Because to me, from what I know of both of their personalities, they they probably were like oil and water in the same room. Yeah, it must have been incredibly awkward because there was already a lot of whisperings about how, you know, Jessica Daves was on her way out at Vogue and Freeland was going to be editor-in-chief. And then suddenly, before you know it... Daves is being forced to announce that, well, Vreeland is coming here and she's going to be editorial advisor and we're working together. And so that's how they start. Vreeland uh, becomes editorial advisor, but there's one photo shoot really that becomes the last straw. And it's the famous Bert Stern, Marilyn Monroe shoot, which becomes her last shoot before her untimely death. So when the original images came back, it was the very risque shots of Marilyn Monroe sort of covering her modesty with scarves. And Dave's absolutely vetoed the images, demanded a reshoot, wanted lots of fashion. And so they went back and did it again with, you know, lots of gorgeous Dior pieces, actually. And the result is beautiful. But between the reshoot and the publication, Marilyn Monroe obviously, unfortunately, passed away. And so Dave's was sort of on the side of pulling the shoot and being respectful. And Vreeland and others, you know, really wanted to push forward with it and and publish it. Um, so they reach a compromise. Um, so Dave's wrote a eulogy and the images ran, but they didn't have, you know, like the, the merchandise information. So it was, 
a little bit more respectful. But really, that whole sad affair, plus um, Lieberman and Reland sort of increasingly working in concert to undermine Dave's, were really the last straw. And so Dave's Dave's moved on out, and Vreeland's, Vreeland became the editor in chief. And what year did that happen? 1962. So, so same year was the same. So they didn't work together particularly long. She joined in 62 and then Dave's was out in 62. It's like a, it's like a few months of what must have been just a torturous agony. <laughs> yeah. So even after leaving Vogue, Dave's continued to work for Condé Nast. Would you tell us a little bit more about that? Because I think um, some of her work at Condé Nast ultimately parlayed themselves into books because I'm dying to get that Vogue recipes book. It's really good. It's really fun. Um, Yes, she does keep working. So she's pushed out of Vogue, but um, she maintains a desk and a secretary (laughs) at the Condé Nast building. So the first thing she did was edit a 70-year anthology, basically, of the best of Vogue's history. It was called The World in Vogue, which was hugely successful. And she writes a really lovely foreword to that, which I also think sort of not only commemorates Vogue's history, but really speaks to her own approach in editing the magazine. And then that was followed up quickly with, as you mentioned, the Vogue book of menus and recipes for entertaining at home. Um, which she co-edited with um, Tatiana McKenna, who was also on the Vogue staff. And this was in the 1960s, and that's why I want to get my hands on it. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's it's a lot of fun. There's a lot of interesting little uh, tidbits about what makes a good party. So, <laughs> um, And actually that same year, so that was 64, that same year she started a newspaper column in the Chicago Tribune with another Vogue editor called Candice Van Allen, Um, It was called The Sophisticated Slant, and it was sort of the pair of them talking about, you know, tips and tricks for life and style, really. It it bared a lot of resemblance to the kind of content that she had in her Vogue. She was also, from 64 until 65, the president of the Fashion Group International, so she published Mm -hmm. a book for them on the Paris collections, which came out in 1967, And that same year, her sort of biggest and best book really was Ready Made Miracle, the American story of uh, fashion for the millions, which was sort of a history of the um, American fashion industry and, you know, really got to the heart of how important and how much she loved and supported the American ready-made industry. And she spends a lot of time talking about American sportswear designers and um, just emphasizing the, the privilege, really, of having the democracy of fashion in America. in America, And it was really well received, gets incredible reviews. And then uh, takes a little bit of a break. And unfortunately, passed away in 1974 at home on Park Avenue. So that kind of leads us to this question that we touched on very briefly at the very beginning. Why is it, in your opinion, why do you think that today she remains lesser known than some of her fellow Vogue editors. Because if you really think about it, this is this is really, you know, a spectacular, almost golden age for the magazine. Yeah, it's so strange. And it's the question that <laughs> I've asked myself, you know, over and over since I realized I didn't, you know, I didn't know much about her. So I think there's a few reasons. I think, you know, she sits between two Vogue greats, you know, Edna Woman Chase and Diana Vreeland. And I think that the pair of them cast long shadows. But I also think that 
She didn't have children or immediate family members to really nurture her legacy and her reputation. So I think that plays into it, that there was no one really safeguarding her legacy. Secondly, I think there's no single extant archive of her personal papers. So working on this has meant going to a number of libraries and archives across the country, some of which don't bear any you would never think that there would be material on Jessica Daves in there. I mean, I was finding stuff in the Sylvia Plath collection at the Lilly Library in Indiana. Um, there's pieces in the JFK Library. Um, her husband's correspondence pops up in the collections of different artists and theatre players. And so you can also learn more about her through that. So I think the fact that there's no single place that you can go to that is a full sort of paper account of her life and work has played into it. And I think thirdly, she had a, a natural disposition against self-promotion. I think it right. it says everything that she made sure that her husband's archive was donated to a library collection, but she she didn't do anything with her own. So yeah, it's been it's been quite a job to really sort of find out more about her. And I really, you know, it's been a privilege trying to sort of restore some recognition to her and I think that if we learn more about who she was and what she believed in, it really does help us understand how and why she ran Vogue the way she did, why Vogue looks the way it did in that era, and so on. So, yeah. And much deserved recognition, I must say. (laughs) Um, We are about out of time for today, but my last question for you, do you have any parting thoughts about what Dave's lasting legacy was to Vogue? You know, I think Dave's makes, uh, made a huge contribution uh, to the landscape of 20th century American fashion. Um, and as, as you said, she deserves this recognition that she's getting. And you can trace so many of her contributions to Vogue right through to today. You know, there's this through line of, of things that she was thinking about even then. And that's an incredible legacy. And I think, you know, when I first started work on her, there was really just a handful of online mentions and a couple of book chapters. And honestly, there was more cruel commentary about her appearance more than anything to do with her life and work. And that's such a sobering realization, you know, that you can have achieved everything that she achieved and yet sort of be somewhat lost to history. And she's not the only figure in fashion history, particularly American fashion history, that needs more research and deserves more recognition. But I also think that what this project has brought to light is not only her professional achievements, which are numerous, but a little bit more about who she was herself. You know, she's a complicated woman and I I love that we can sort of explore that. She could be abrasive and curt and she didn't suffer fools and she could be nervous and socially anxious. She was brilliant, cautious, stubborn, thoughtful. You know, she was a human being. And so I think that rather than sort of perpetuate a narrative of Vogue's history that, you know, essentially leaves her out, it's a really good time to think about everything she brought to the table during her era, how it was influenced by what came before, and how it led to what came next. Rebecca, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today. This was fascinating. And again, long overdue recognition for Dave's. And we can't wait to see what you're up to next. I happen to know that you're working on a new book. Do you want to perhaps do a little teaser for our listeners about what you're working on now? Yeah, I'm looking at a, well, I'll keep it, I'll keep it a real teaser. So I'm working on another magazine and another editor who also needs uh, a lot of recognition and 
um, it's going to be a really, a really fun project. And thank you so much for having me. I'm a huge dress podcast fan. So this is a thrill. (laughs) Thank you for joining us. More of Rebecca's work on the history of fashion journalism coming soon. Thank you. Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us and shining a light on Dave's and everything that went into the making of Vogue at this time. I really think that for many of us, magazines seemingly appear from nowhere and feel completely ephemeral, like another of them will magically appear in a few weeks. But creating a single issue is really a symphony of people coming together, and it's really evidence of their working collaborations and vision. April, I really appreciated how interested Dave's was in promoting artists and thinking about the nature of modernism and modern life. Yes, and we touched on this, um, but again, I'm going to plug Dave's book, Ready Made Miracle, which was first published in 1967. And I'm also not going to lie to you guys, uh, getting your hands on a physical copy is hard to do because it's out of print, but you might be able to find it at your library or request it through interlibrary loan. Or I have a hot pro tip. Um, So for any of you who are huge research nerds like, like me and Cass, Do you know about the Internet Archive? (laughs) Oh my goodness, Internet Archive. Full on rabbit hole alert, friends. You literally can entertain yourself for a lifetime browsing the Internet Archive's 20 million books, 8 million videos and audio recordings, 200,000 software programs, and the list goes on. The Internet Archive describes itself as, quote, a nonprofit library of millions of free books, movies, software, music, and more. And you guessed it, you can actually find Dave's book, Ready Made Miracle, there. And this is, there's another one really cool thing about the Internet Archive, because there are lots of sites like Kathy Trust where you can download historic sources that are now in the public domain that have been digitized. But with the Internet Archive, you can actually check out, quote unquote, for 14 days, a virtual copy of a book that isn't in the public domain yet, just like you do with a library. So you do have to have an account, but it's entirely free. So as Cass said, happy rabbit holing, dress listeners. (laughs) Well, that does it for us this week. May you consider adding a little extra 50s flair into your ensemble next time you get dressed. Please join us this Thursday for our mini-sode where we answer your listener questions or keep you up to date on the latest in the field of fashion studies. We love hearing from you, so please feel free to email us at dressed at iheartmedia.com. And you can, of course, find us on Instagram at dress underscore podcast and Facebook dress podcast without the underscore. As always, thank you to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes the show possible each week. We will catch you on Thursday. Dress, the history of fashion, is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.